welcome to our latest installment of the Evolution Exchange Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm James Price, Cybersecurity Recruitment Consultant here at Evolution, and today I'll be your host. In today's episode, we'll be discussing recruiting homegrown cyber talent. I'm fortunate enough to be joined by a fantastic panel, so let's kick off with some introductions. Sam, do you want to kick us off with a brief introduction first? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, James. So, hello, my name's Sam Watling. I'm Head of Critical Asset Security at TUI. Um, I've had the pleasure of bringing in the first IT apprentices into our UK business as far back as 2016, and I've been involved in uh, bringing in what we call early talent from that point, both into um, security and elsewhere. Brilliant. Thank you, Sam. And Guy? Hello there, I'm Guy Morell, CISO at the Francis Crick Institute in London. We're a biomedical research, uh, so 1,500 scientists under one roof trying to understand human disease, uh, cancer and so on. And uh, yeah, I head up the uh, SOC and networks and uh, recruited people. I built those teams from the ground up. And because we're academia, we tend to hire and develop more junior people um, as opposed to bringing a senior. Thanks, Guy. I'm finally Holly. Hey, my name is Holly Gross-Williams. I'm the Managing Director at Kimbuko. I guess my view onto this is uh, I work in a very technical field. So we're a penetration testing company. We have to bring in uh, some some real tech skill. And of course, you can't always hire those uh, perfect senior engineers. So uh, growing some homegrown talent is another option. But it's something that I think a lot of companies, very technically focused companies, struggle with. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how, how we've had success and hopefully uh, how it's worked out for us. Great. Now we're done with the introductions. Let's kick off some questions. So, Sam, your question to the panel was, what are some of the issues that homegrown talent experience when starting a cyber role and how can we improve that experience both for the colleague and the company? So, Sam, if you could provide some context around this question, please. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think in, in recent years, we've seen quite a kind of prevalence of kind of career changes coming into the, the industry, uh, certainly from both within our organisations, but also externally certainly in the uk through kind of the uh, the growing use of the apprenticeship programs that are specifically designed to to allow people to career change uh, so obviously that brings people into our organizations that potentially have very little exposure to to information or cyber security in any way and actually this this brings a whole range of issues in terms of kind of both integrating folk into the teams but but also getting some value from these people, perceived value from, from the organization as soon as they join. So yes, yeah, so this question is primarily around kind of what, what are some of the issues we've all, all experienced on this point and, and kind of what can we do to, to make it better both for, for us and them, as it were. Great, thanks for that, Sam. Guy? So Sam, I think it's a great question. And one of the ones, it depends on how experienced they are and how senior they are coming into the role, but if they're relatively junior, I think there is a danger of either imposter syndrome and kind of feeling like they, they haven't really got what it takes to do this role and suddenly they're going to be expected to be the experts in the room sort of from day one. Uh, and then the other end of it is people who perhaps think they know uh, will think their ability is higher than it is and that they can come in with their cape on and just solve all the problems and um, you know, perhaps rather than coming straight in on what I would do about that maybe I'll, I'll throw that one back and see what you guys think. Brilliant and Holly? I think it's interesting to highlight imposter syndrome because I definitely think that's a problem that a lot of uh, cybersecurity professionals have. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is it can just be so difficult as an individual to grade where you are, especially if you're, if you're coming into an organization 
even not necessarily as a junior member of staff, just a new member of staff, working out kind of where your knowledge fits into everybody else's knowledge can be really difficult. And I think one of the ways that organizations can help with that, be it hiring graduates or as uh, Sam mentioned, career changes and things like that, is having some kind of program in place to explain that stuff in terms of how are we grading engineers? What is the knowledge that we expect you to need? So, I mean, some of the roles, it's going to be relatively easy, isn't it? If you think about things like software development, then you'll have some uh, great ticks you can get straight away. It's like, which programming languages do you need to be familiar with? Because what is our code base written in? But when it comes to uh, roles are a little bit uh, broader in terms of just the, the vast amount of skill sets. So like, I mean, um, penetration testing, for example, we come up to all kinds of technologies all of the time and our customers might be using some real niche stuff. So how do we make sure that those new members of staff know what is expected of them. I think that's a, a big thing that's often overlooked. Uh, I think from the organization's point of view, if they're happy, if the person comes in and they're getting on and they're doing work and they're integrating with the team, they might never feed that back to the person to tell them. It's like, hey, by the way, you are actually doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's really good and really interesting. Um, we've certainly been thinking about this. And one of the tools we've used to try and tackle this is a, a skills matrix. But the challenge with that is that you once you start wandering around the department with a skills matrix people immediately think is this redundancies is this and they might get completely the wrong uh, idea when in fact what you're trying to do is almost map out a pathway through the department and say well here are the competencies we expect people to have at these various levels you know we've published our job job descriptions internally so that people can see what's expected of all the roles at different levels and really trying to make it a transparent process so that people are just aware of what's expected of them and what level they need to be at to get to make their next career move um and i think that that can help with with career um with imposter syndrome with career progression but as i say the challenge is that when you're trying to do anything like this not getting that communication right so that people understand what the intent is behind the activity and that it's there to support what they're doing and the department rather than as i say the sort of redundancies side have you guys done anything in this area uh sam so um so in terms of skills matrix yeah and yes we have done some activity uh, in this area more specifically around kind of mapping roles across across our technology organization and actually having a clear definition of, of what we mean by, uh, by by the various positions. Uh, as an organization, we're sp spread across Europe, so we've got quite a vast range of different kind of job titles that in some parts of the organization mean slightly different things. So actually having a bit of a consistent um, organization uh, kind of framework I guess across across Europe has been quite helpful and equally defining more junior roles within when he, within each of these job categories has helped especially bringing in kind of homegrown talent maybe that don't have the skills in that area we do have a junior role that we can slot those folk into and then it's quite clear what their career progression might be going forward. Brilliant. And Holly? Yeah, it's interesting to hear skills metrics because I, I have had success with those, but um, not necessarily in this context. Another thing that I think skills metrics are good for is finding single points of failure within the team. So if you have somebody who comes in and they're actually become really important because they have some skill that other people don't have, you can highlight that as well. So mm -hmm. it could be nice to feedback to the new members of staff. It's like, hey, this this other person has this skill that you don't have, but, but don't worry, that wasn't a requirement for you coming into this role. But also the organization then learns, oh, hey, that's the only person who can do that thing. We might want to do some uh, cross training or something there. Uh, and another thing, just in terms of like 
uh, how messages get passed within organizations and things like that. So talking about their, how if you start coming around asking everybody for skills metrics and talking about job descriptions and things like that, people might interpret that as, oh gosh, a redundancy is coming and that could be negative. So it is important to, to think about those messages, but also just like, how are you uh, spreading this information? How does that work? I know I've talked to some organizations where they're like, oh, it's fine. We have one-to-ones with the whole team and that's how we make sure that everybody's uh, uh, up to date on things. So we do skip levels and then you find out that they're doing them like once a year or something and it's like okay great so a new member of staff has to wait 12 months to find out whether they're doing a good job or not so it's just you know not here to kind of tell organizations how to run but those are some obvious things that i think should be reviewed <laughs> brilliant and guy um yeah i think it's it's interesting to take the skills metrics and the job description and consider that they are different um what holly was saying there about people thinking, oh, well, do I need the skills that that person had? And, you know, one's almost a snapshot of the department as is, and the other one is a snapshot of the roles as, you know, minimum, minimum competencies and so on. And I've certainly seen lots of people carve a niche for themselves by, I suppose, bringing what is about unique, but what's unique about that person? What are their aptitudes, skills, what makes them excited? And they sort of bring all that energy to the job. And that means the job's done a certain way. And maybe they end up doing activities and projects that are slightly tangential to their to core. And that's fine. That's a healthy department. But then, yes, if you're looking at uh, succession planning, that could be a real knotty one to unpick and, and having that job description to refer back to. And, and, I, and I think being willing to update those from time to time and, you know, look at as the needs of the department or the company change shape, you know, being sort of flexible there. Brilliant. And Sam? Yeah, just to pick up on the, the we, we've mentioned this term imposter syndrome a couple of times already on this call. And interesting and interestingly enough, I've spoken to our recent intake of, of graduate apprentices and th this word came up there as well. I think actually making sure that the people that join the organisation or, or on on cyber folk kind of feel part of the team is absolutely critical going back to holly's point around communicating and, and making sure that the, the message messages are delivered from from the right level to to our uh, to our, our homegrown talent is is absolutely key i think certainly at TUI, TUI we try and invite uh, make sure these people are invited to their team stand-ups and huddles as soon as they join the organisation. Make sure they're invited to all of the broader organisation communication forums straight away, because actually that's the best way to get embedded into our organisations is actually to feel part of it from day one, rather than having to wait until they may or may not get an invitation from, from our fellow HR colleagues down the road. Uh, so yeah, absolutely get, getting them invited to as many kind of communication forums as possible without them feeling overloaded, but, but to, to kind of minify, mini that, minify that uh, imposter syndrome is, is the answer, I think. Brilliant. And finally, Guy? Well, I was just thinking, as we've been talking about imposter syndrome and that to comparing that to culture and through the lens of culture. So I've worked in environments where technical ability and identity and kind of worth are really tightly coupled. And so people can end up being very defensive and very um, judgmental when things go wrong. And I've seen engineers really suffer with sort of the fear of making a single mistake and then they won't voice an opinion in case it's not the same as the more senior person and it can be quite poisonous. But then I've also worked in organizations where the culture is fail quickly, fail openly, you know, it's okay not to know. I mean, that's a big one, not expecting us all to be walking encyclopedias. Obviously we're hired for our technical ability and our competencies and so on, but it's, it's that, 
if you can get that culture right where people don't feel all the time that they have to know every, every answer to every question and get cultures where people ask each other questions as much as they give answers, it's much healthier and can, I think, start to pick away at that imposter syndrome. Yeah, brilliant. So thanks for them inputs. So next up, we have Guy's question, which is how do you maintain team performance while onboarding and training new staff, especially if you're replacing experienced staff? So Guy, if you can provide some context around this question, please. Yeah, I don't know if any of you have been through changes um, in your teams, in your organisations. Um, it can be a really disruptive time. I think there's, there's the model isn't there of... Um, forming, storming, norming, performing, uh, where you you shake a team up a little bit and, and it can take quite a long time for them to get back to the area they were at. And, you know, change like hiring is a good example of this because you, you really have someone leave. So there's a change and then you go through that cycle. Then you've got to try and get those JDs out, work with HR. This is maybe in parallel. You're going through the interviewing process. You're talking to candidates. You're getting, you know, it, it's, it's a huge undertaking. And so during all of this time, the team time and energy has been taken away from their core tasks. Then you've got the new starter comes on or starters come in and suddenly the team shape takes that. Suddenly the team changes shape again, personalities. We talked before about how everyone has their own energy and their own competencies and things they get into. And so their shape is probably going to be quite different to their predecessors. Or if the team's growing, you've got to adapt to that. So I just, I think it's a really interesting time in a team and a really cha challenging one to manage. And if you get it right, it's very satisfying. And so I just wondered what approaches you all take to, to making this work well. Great. And Holly? I think one of the things that I often see with teams is where organizations try and run the team at 100% all the time. And it doesn't actually necessarily matter what, what is the cause of people not being able to run it at absolute capacity. It could be that you're trying to get a new starter or you've just secured a new starter, or it could just be somebody needs a day off because they're sick or something's gone wrong, you know, um, funerals and all of these other things that happen in the real world where a person might uh, not be operating at 100% or might not be around at all. I think companies who um, plan everything where the team must run at 100%, uh, you, you're going to fail at some point and you're probably going to fail at a point in which is not convenient. Something will go wrong and someone will be unavailable. So I think the thing there is just like try and work out how do you free up some capacity in those teams, even if that means project debts have to slip. And then when you're not doing those things, like bringing in new hires and those kinds of things, what can that Slack capacity be used for? So it could be used for things like um, people upskilling, people learning new things, training, that kind of thing. So even if the team is, you know, uh, you've, you've got everyone, you're not doing a recruitment cycle, something like that, you still want to make sure that people are learning the new technologies and all of those kinds of problems. So yeah, I guess my, my view on that is just um, don't try and run your team at 100% or something will go wrong at some point. <laughs> Brilliant answer. Yeah, thanks for the question, Guy. I think that's a fantastically difficult question to answer, actually. Um, and I, I, I agree totally with Holly. I think running the team with no slack means you have zero ability to do a good job at this. Um, I think certainly in my experience, it's, it's, it's the whole planning adage as usual. I think, it, as I say, from my experience, where, we, where we've planned to have someone come on board and, and actually put a proper kind of process in, in place and to, to kind of land on the ground and kind of running, as it were, and, and actually getting up to speed quickly and have something to do on day one, which is absolutely critical. Um, 
I mean, where we've done that planning, we've had great success. And actually, it's not impacting the team performance too much because there's been an expectation of this person arriving. And actually, they're, they're, we, we've known that it's going to take quite a, a lot of effort to bring this person up to speed. But that's kind of built into the plan. So it's, it's not a surprise and it, it kind of works. Um, in scenarios where we, we've kind of dropped dropped. Uh, kind of new folk into teams without any explanation, uh, it's failed. We, we've not had the support in the team, we've not pre-planned, and the team performance suffers. So, so there's 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 some pre-work needed, I guess, is my point here. Certainly in terms of maintaining team performance and, and kind of going back to kind of front the framework side, I think um, doing something like a Myers-Briggs type indicator type thing with with the reformed team once we've had new people start has been fantastic actually, just so that people have understood the different styles within the team and been able to, to adapt quite quickly. So certainly when, when I've had kind of new teams form, that's worked brilliantly just to, to get everyone on the, on the same page and know what the differences are within the team. Um, yeah. Brilliant, and Guy? <laughs> um, I think that's, those are really good points. Like I love what Holly was saying about not running 100%. I, I agree with that entirely. Um, I think you need to leave slack in the team, if nothing else, so they can keep on top of the industry and learn and develop themselves. Um, and yeah, laying the groundwork, preparing the team for the change. I think Sam, you're, you're absolutely right. I, um, in that, along that line, I think along those lines, you know, some of the areas I've found success in is things like planning what work they'll be doing for the first few months and um, that might involve you know operational tasks and how we're going to get them you know follow our standards you know processes to get them up to speed on what they can do obviously there's always the usual the, the company onboarding things but then projects you know, meaty interesting things what what could you give someone to do safely ideally give them some ownership but also an opportunity to interact with the team and it's it sort of almost setting up roles and responsibilities and boundaries so people know well I sit here in the team and this is these are the areas that I do this is the thing I collaborate on and and, and providing you can't provide total certainty but giving clarity at least on expectations I, I found races can be quite useful especially if the team's changing shape um, and you're doing projects and people know you know where 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 do they sit and, and often there are overlapping responsibilities and that's great and you, you want that in many cases but you don't want somebody new coming in and feeling like they're in danger of stepping on people's toes they want to and you want to give them space to grow and to you know really make you know the biggest contribution they can great answer yeah i totally agree with your point guy around how, having something to do for the first few weeks and actually we've had really good success in in letting kind of new folk into our organization have something creative to do so okay they may not have the cyber skills from day one because that's not what we're kind of recruiting for for job changes for example but actually they're fantastically creative with fresh ideas that maybe we've been missing so actually throwing them into doing some kind of training and awareness campaign type work has been a phenomenally beneficial for us and actually I've seen again with previous graduate intakes giving them something a little bit different to do maybe not specifically related to the role but there's something very creative that they can get stuck into that kind of provides a bit of value from that perspective has been really useful. Brilliant and so finally we have Holly's question which asks how can an organization ensure they're ready for growing talent given they are going to need to uh, going to need far more support than experience hire. So Holly, if you could provide some context around this question, please. 
Yeah, I guess that sounds like uh, very similar to the previous question. So I'll tell you what what I meant by it and why why it is different to me. What I'm talking about is the actual action. So we've kind of mentioned here saying like, oh, make make sure they have something to do that kind of thing. Uh, and very often I, I'm talking to organizations about how we've had success by hiring much more junior staff, hiring graduates and things like that and bringing them on. And sometimes when you say these things, somebody might take away from that. Okay, great, we should hire a graduate. But if you just bring a graduate in and you have no structure in place to allow them to, to grow and to become a part of the team, that, that's going to go really badly. So really what I'm talking about is when you talk about things like um, making sure they've got things to go, making sure there's a training plan and things like that, it's like specifically what do we mean? So that that's the, the kind of context that I'm thinking about here is, okay, great. Now we're, we are going through the process of bringing in some homegrown talent. What next? Brilliant. And Guy? Yeah, exactly what we're thinking about at the moment. Um, we've, we've done this sort of thing many times of bringing people in, but the first time we're doing it with cyber. And so it's it's taking some real brain power to think, well, how are we going to do this in a safe way and not, you know, because the, the responsibility that cyber mm-hmm. people have, the, the powers we have are quite significant. So one of the areas is around sort of graduated input, how I put it as well, like a, a, you almost want a gentle slope to sort of run in. So for instance, there might be certain um, tasks which are important to cybersecurity but don't require massive technical knowledge. Um, there's also it depends on the sort of core competencies. But if somebody's a reasonable sysadmin already, you know, there's things they can start getting straight into. Um, so finding appropriate early tasks, kind of going back to what we were saying before. But an example might be showing them a dashboard which you know covers which alerts, you know, which devices are vulnerable, and those sorts of things, and getting them to go out and have conversations with data owners or system owners and start to gather you know, information as to why isn't that system being patched or why is this process failing? And if they're a graduate, they've probably got decent analytical skills. They can start sort of bringing in that sort of information about what's going on, um, which you can then use to say, okay, now I'm going to show you what we do with this, or here's the process we follow up with. And so I think it, it is quite prescriptive to start with junior people. You kind of, you know, they maybe they know what a hammer is, but not exactly where to swing it. And you have to almost hold their hand to start with um, and then have a program, have a plan. Uh, so one area is, you know, technical development. For instance, if you know, there are certain certs that you know are very beneficial, you know, maybe you say, well, I think you should have, you know, plan to develop yourself and get this certification within this timescale. Obviously, that's a massive task. If their personality lends themselves just off they go, then brilliant. But if there's somebody who maybe needs a little bit more of a nudge along, you might say, I think you should go read this chapter of this book because this will really help you and then come back with any questions and be more prescriptive. And it does depend on the individual. But yeah, as I say, having a a, a plan, a gradual increase of responsibility, a gradual increase of scope, and some way of measuring when they get got to get to a certain competency level and can then be given more responsibility, like by getting a cert or something or completing a project. All of those things can really help. Great, and Sam. Yeah, really, really good points there, Guy. I think um, to, in, in terms of your point around the gentle slope and ramp up, I think um, certainly we've had some great success in. In, in, get, in getting our new, new employees involved in things as soon as we can. So if, if the rest of our security practice are doing some training on a, a certain cloud provider's technology, get get our, our new talent involved uh, and get them on that training as soon as they join. And, and actually, we've had some really good success in, in kind of getting them aligned to the organization by just kind of throwing them in at the deep end with something that's, that's not going to 
uh, cause major disruption to the organization if it goes wrong, but it's kind of development opportunity and, and kind of getting getting those people used to the field as soon as possible. Um, in terms of the kind of the organization getting ready. So historically, um, I've recruited graduates and apprentices myself. And by that, I mean, from an IT perspective, we didn't really have any kind of HR support back in the day. Early talent wasn't a thing as such. Um, but nowadays we've got, we've got quite a good HR team specifically designed to support both we as recruiters and our line, new line managers in actually dealing with those guys and, and knowing how, kind of the amount of effort it will take to, to kind of ramp them up and actually giving them quite a lot of guidance and, and support uh, when, when the, the, the new employees join us. Um, and as we've said before, getting the line managers ready is absolutely pivotal. And for us, that's kind of getting them involved in the recruitment process. Um, even if we're recruiting a pool of, of talent, uh, one or two of those those guys will end up being being uh, end up with those line managers. So let's get them involved early, and and then we can get have everyone bought into the process, and they don't just get kind of chucked over the fence at, at the end when they join join the company. And the final point I was going to make around this is. In terms of having a plan, certainly one thing that's worked really well for us to to bring people up to speed is actually to rotate them around the organization. And I guess I don't mean organization as in the whole of TUI, I mean the information security practice. So actually, let's rotate them over the two years of certain apprenticeship to actually see all of the different pillars of, of security from kind of the, the operational side to kind of the governance side where I sit and, and everything in between with a bit of kind of business contact on the way. So to give them kind of that flavor. So kind of after the, the say first two years, they've got a much much better view of actually where they want to get kind of stuck in more permanently um, in the company. Brilliant. And Guy? I was just going to pick up on something Sam said about um, getting the managers involved. Uh, there's some really good points there and that sort of made me think about delegation and the importance of delegation in an organisation. Um, if you get people at all levels delegating tasks down, it not only brings on the competencies of those you know, at each level of the chain, but it also means that once you get to the bottom of that chain, the least important things are being dumped and not done. And if you're bringing people into an organisation and they're coming in, you're trying to develop them, one of the best ways to do that is to delegate to them. And you know, one way of, might be, you mentioned getting the managers involved, you know, bringing in management responsibilities to people who've been around a little while and maybe giving them one or two direct reports if you're big enough. Um, you know, it's a form of delegation in a way, but you, know, you don't want to have too many one-to-ones every week as a, as a boss. It can be exhausting and time-consuming and maybe diminishing returns after a certain point. So I think, yeah, I just thought it was worth, worth making that point that, Delegation at all levels can be really helpful and enable people a chance to grow, whether they're new starters or they've been around for a while. Brilliant. And Holly? Yeah, I liked uh, Guy's point there about kind of sliding responsibilities where you're not dropping a task on somebody straight away, but you, you're kind of building them up to it. And that is definitely something that I've had success in uh, the past, especially with recurring tasks where you can have effectively them shadow somebody the first time around. And then slowly as that, that task uh, repeats, they can take more and more of those responsibilities so that ultimately on their last go, they're doing it themselves and the other person's there just in case anything catches on fire in that way. They're not ever being overwhelmed. And also it kind of beats down that imposter syndrome a little bit hopefully because it's not their first time doing it they've seen it a few times and that should help too um another thing that i've seen uh, as well is having uh, new members of the the team review tech debt 
So taking a look at something that's maybe not being looked at actively by the team. And I think there's there's two main benefits to this. Uh, one is very often with tech debt, it isn't reviewed as frequently as you'd like. Maybe something was done for a reason and that reason no longer applies. It's old. Uh, and if there is something uh, that we would consider tech debt, something that the organization is um, dealing with because it's it's not ideal, then at least that new member of the team understands that tech debt and understands some more of the challenges that the organization is facing. So just a, a benefit to the organization of, of reviewing those kind of old decisions and a benefit to the new person of understanding those old decisions, but also giving them the opportunity to do something uh, which might have been missed, which would be beneficial to the organization. Because it might be the case that when they look at that tech debt, actually this problem doesn't apply anymore and we can get rid of this system or something like that. So just a, a couple, of, couple of ideas. Brilliant. Uh, any more from Sam or Guy? Yeah, Guy? Yeah, I, I, I like that tech debt review idea um, Holly just made. I think you could almost broaden that as well. Certainly when we've had new starters, one of the first jobs I gave one person was to review our documentation and check, you know, firstly, does it all make sense? Can you find it all? Does it, is it all still relevant as you go through and start onboarding? Is any of this stuff obsolete? Because it's very hard to motivate people to go back and look at documentation. Um, and so just having that fresh pair of eyes. And I think also processes, you know, there's that we've always done it this way thing that we can get comfortable just doing things a certain way. You know, the apocryphal story of the, the person who always chopped the head off the pig before they roasted it because their mum did it because their grandma did it. And it turned out it's because of the size of the pot or something originally. Those sorts of things where you're just doing dumb stuff without really realising and having even a relatively junior person come in and say, well, why um, can be really helpful, I think, um, get them started contributing quickly and also um, yeah, have assumptions checked. Great. And Sam? Yeah, I totally agree with that point, Guy. I think um, certainly in the kind of cyber realm, we get very stuck in our ways and we think that the way the way we've done things is the way that they should be done. And certainly for, for those of us who have been at our organisations for a certain number of years, sometimes you get a bit blinkered as to so what what the right thing to do is, and and having that external pair of eyes come in and and be, be a bit more rational about uh, how how we should be delivering things and and what works for for our people is is a great thing, and and even uh, the fact that actually uh, by definition if we're bringing in kind of uh, junior folks to the organisations they they've certainly got kind of fresh ideas on on things that work and, and the best way to deliver messages to to our colleagues and and obviously people being one of the primary tenants of, of security and um, we always say people can be our, our weakest or strongest link and actually if, we, if we're not getting the messages out to our uh, kind of our cyber messages out to our wider community in the right way which is something we're likely to miss um, if, if we've been doing this for a few years then this is a great opportunity for for bringing in some some kind of some fr fresh vision on on the best way of kind of communicating to to our people. Brilliant. And finally, Holly. I don't think I've got anything to add there. I think that we, we've brought up some <clears throat> some great points. And I think you know what I wanted to bring out with my question is like give give me something actionable. Don't just tell me I should have tasks prepared. What kind of tasks? I think I think everybody's contributed some there. So yeah, it was good. Yeah, great to hear. Well, thanks for your questions and answers. Some really good insights. Hope you've all enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank the three of you for joining me today outside of your busy schedules to come together and have a great conversation around such an important topic for most businesses as they look to grow. We'll leave it there for now. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. Thank you for listening.